The word of the Lord to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you. And cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, there was a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Welcome to the last installment of the Rattle series here at the Tabernacle. My name is John, I'm one of the pastors, and we're glad that you're here with us in Buckley and here with us in Manistee. And it's for me, it's bittersweet. We spent a lot of time preparing and planning for this series, and and, uh, I'd like to think that it was offered up to God as an act of worship. But I also hope that God has used it as a blessing for you. I know he has for me. And we've been reading bits of that piece. That's kind of been our theme uh, section of Scripture, Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. And it's, it's from this ancient prophet, this word that God gave him, but it's timeless because it's Scripture. And so, for us, we've been looking at how can God rattle our dry bones awake? Now, this is to assume that your bones are dry and you needed awakening. Maybe you've been like, hey, where have you been, preacher? I've been awake the whole time. But that's neither here nor there. Because we all go through seasons of spiritual dryness or, you know, other seasons where maybe we feel like we're caught on fire. Regardless of where you are, we felt that it was profitable for us. But I want to focus on a couple things in this last weekend that I think are important for us. Some new things. Now, we're not going to say anything that's really that new, but for this series, maybe it is. That last section there in Ezekiel 37, after the breath and the sinews, you know, the bones do their thing and skin comes on. I mean, it's a a tripped out vision that the prophet Ezekiel has. It says at the very end that then they stood all of these bones that are now skeletons, that now have sinew, flesh, skin... And they stood up together, and it says, an exceedingly great army? Now, I added the question mark. 
But that's where I'd like to focus. Who is this exceedingly great army and what is it that they do? Now, I don't know what they meant or what it was meant for all those thousands of years ago, but I know what it means for us. Whenever we see this type of imagery or these type of words used in scripture, especially when it's associated with God and God's people, when it says that there's an exceedingly great army, we need to consider who they were and what they were there for. Or better yet for us today in 2021 for the tabernacle, one church and two locations and everywhere in between that people are listening. Who is this exceedingly great army? And what does exceedingly great mean? I spent some time and decided not to bore you with all the definitions I came up with exceedingly and great. It means special, unique, really big, vast. Is that sufficient? Who is this exceedingly great army? And what do they do exactly? Do they kill people and break things? I don't think so. I don't think that's what it's about. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I want to do something that I don't believe I've ever done in all the years that are in my calling as a preacher and as a pastor. This sermon is based on one verse. Actually, to be more precise, this sermon is based on a half a verse. Now, before the service began, a couple of my buddies were telling me they heard about a preacher who preached for 50 minutes on one word, and I don't think I have those kind of chops, so I'm not going to try to do that, so I hope you stay and stick it out, but this is going to be one half of a verse, and it's something that Jesus said, and we're not ripping it out of context, right? Uh, uh, But it is significant, and I think it'll help us answer this question, who is this army, and what is it that they're supposed to do? So in Matthew chapter 16, in the second half of verse 18, I'd like us to consider together the words of Jesus. In this moment, he makes this statement. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the answer to the question of who the army is. Now, it may not answer what they do yet. We'll get to that. But right here, this is who the army is. Because in this verse, Jesus is saying to us as Christians, he's saying to his disciples, to his followers... He's saying a lot of things. Number one, that there's going to be this thing called the church, this ecclesia, that it's going to gather for worship, and then it's going to scatter for ministry. The purpose of the church is to gather and bring glory to God. So in other words, and we've talked about this in the past, coming to church is not all about you, it's all about him. Yes, we hope that you enjoy the worship. Yes, we feel that it's important that you connect with the teaching and that you kind of generally like at least some of the people, right? It's nice if the seats are comfortable, if the air is nice, but really it's not about you. We gather to bring glory to God. We gather because we're compelled to worship him. We gather because he's worthy of us gathering. Do you agree? But it's not just for that. It's for for our edification. We also have another purpose. We have another mission. Because apparently, according to this verse, when Jesus says, I will build my church... Apparently, we have an enemy, and the enemy is hell itself. 
Because when we use the word prevail, that means there's a fight. There's a contest. There's a matchup. There's a battle royale. Jesus said it. Now, it's important that I say that Jesus said it because in 2021, we're tired of war. We're tired of conflict. We're tired of uh, even the overtired uh, imagery that the church has used for 2,000 years of being in a war. But I didn't make up the imagery. We see it all throughout the New Testament. According to this verse, according to Jesus' words, this exceedingly great army that won't be prevailed against is the church. The church versus hell itself. We're the army. You and I are in this army. I mean, I remember growing up as a little kid, and one of my favorite hymns, hands down, was Onward Christian Soldiers Marching. Remember that? You can't sing that in 2021. People get real sad when you start doing that. You know, my second favorite one was, was the battle hymn of the republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the come. I'll leave the singing to other people. But you know, you're tracking with me? Battle hymn of the republic. You can't sing that in 2021. It's like all of a sudden, many of us, many of us even in the church, soft hearts, soft hands, uh, it's too combative. You know, we just need nice Jesus. You know, we need the church just to be a safe place for everyone. And I get it. It's supposed to be, but... 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that apparently we wage war because it's in that passage where it says the weapons that we fight with and this war that we're waging are different from the weapons of the world. We're not talking about storming Washington, D.C. We're not talking about the church militant trying to take back the Holy Land. But make no mistake, we're in a war. It's real combat, but it's more important than all the battles that nations fight. It's for hearts, for minds, for souls, for marriages. The wars for your children. The wars for your grandchildren. The wars for your neighbors. People far from God that you work with. People who are confused. People that have never seen the light or have never known what real love looks like. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, this exceedingly great army made up of men and women and students and children, is told to fight the good fight of the faith. There's a verse. It's the church versus hell itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told to endure suffering like a good soldier. And there's other analogies in there. In 2 Timothy 3, it talks about that, you know, a pastor sometimes is like a farmer, but, uh, you know, and other times is like an athlete. But when it says to us, endure suffering like a good soldier, a soldier in what army? The Lord's army. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the full armor of God. I remember years ago preaching a message on this, and, and uh, uh, we didn't have, you know, all the technology that we have now, but I knew that when I was preaching through Ephesians 6 about the full armor of God, you remember that when it says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, take on, you know, you have a breastplate, and you have a shield, and you have a helmet of salvation, and a belt, and all that stuff. I didn't dress up like that, but I, I knew I'd get some, some northern Michigan uh, men in particular, I'd get their attention if I had a sword. And so uh, it was the engine show weekend, and I instructed my wife, who was going to the engine show, to get some funnel cakes and socks. Because that's what you get at the Buckley Old Engine Show. I said, 
There's always rednecks there selling swords. Bring me a big sword. And so I preach with a big sword. And some of you were here. And, and it's the only offensive weapon. In Ephesians 6, it says apparently there's this spiritual armor of God. And one of the reasons all of our services, all of our DNA, all of our theology, all of the teaching is based on this word is because it's our only offensive weapon. And it's a sword and we want it to be sharp. And in that message, I remember pulling out a little plastic picnic fork. And then I had this big, giant, Buckley Old Engines show broadsword. Maybe I should have done that this weekend. But you get the point. And I pointed out that many of us, we don't know this for nothing. And we're going into a fight, part of this exceedingly great army, armed with plastic knives. We have no idea how to use a broadsword. This exceedingly great army is us. It's us. And then you come to that word prevail. And I found myself these past weeks just asking, are we prevailing? You see, an army is made up of individuals, right? So an army is also, or a team, they would say at least, I assume it's the same of an army, would say a team is only as strong as its weakest player. So I just wonder, are you prevailing? Do you feel like you're prevailing? Or are you being prevailed against? Us as a church, us as a unit, are we prevailing? Are we experiencing the blessing and the revival and the rattling, the living, breathing spirit of God working through us? Or are we still kind of not prevailing? You answer that for yourself. But in order to be an exceedingly great army, and if Jesus' words are true when he says, I will build my church... And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I know as for me in my house, I want to prevail. I want to armor up. I want to fight the good fight. I want to endure suffering like a good soldier of the Lord. Because his kingdom is the only thing that will last. But the only way to do that is if we know who we are individually. If we know what our mission is. And that starts with every person who's listening or watching, being a part of this service. And so just these past weeks, I, I've, I've come across a tool that I think might be helpful for us. You see, I'm afraid because I'm, I'm a part of a fight club table. In fact, I'm part of two fight club tables. Most of us, we don't know who we are and we don't know why we do what we do. And it comes from the fact that we really don't know who God is or what God does. And so this won't be the last time you see this image, but can we put this up? This is something I've found called the gospel ladder. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. Don't worry, we'll find a place to make it available to you. But this could change your life. I know it changed mine. In fact, just this past week, I was showing it to some of my brothers at Fight Club, and and as soon as we explained it, I could see them writing it in their notes. They didn't want to forget it. You see up at the top, Besides the title, it says the gospel ladder. The very top rung, this is who God is. And from who God is, that determines what God does. The next rung down. From what God does, that determines who I am as part of this exceedingly great army. And then last but not least, there's what I do. Now, let me explain something to you. You see the green arrow going uh, from the top down. If you work your way down the ladder, that is the true gospel. 
That is the true gospel. If you try to work your way from the bottom up, that is false gospel. And you can be a Christian and not fully understand the gospel. You can believe in Jesus and not fully understand the gospel. I just saw a quote uh, uh, just this past week from, from a guy that I respect that says, real revival, well, first of all, real revival only can be controlled by God. We can't bring revival. Only God can bring revival. We can draw near to God, and he'll draw near to us. But the way he said it is he said, real revival happens when Christians, when God's people finally understand the gospel or understand it fully and in a new way. And so I'm like, all right, I got to show these people the gospel ladder. Does that make sense? So watch how it works. Go back to the top. Who God is. I'll tell you who God is. This is his character. This is his nature. This is everything about him. That he is perfectly just and holy. There is no evil. There is no wrong. There is no sin in him. He can't abide it. And not only that, his justice must punish sin. This is his wrath. It's all wrapped up in the fact that he's a just God. But at the same time, we also know that God is love. This is who God is. And with his love comes his mercy and his grace. This is part of his character too. The only thing he can hate is sin. And even some things that we see and we wonder why did God allow that really comes out of the loving kindness of his character. We talked about that in the Samuel series. Has said loving kindness, the steadfast love of God. That's who God is. And from who God is, that's where we see what God does. Well, what does God do? He forgives. He accepts. He redeems. He reclaims. He blesses. He protects. He sends his spirit the same way he sent his own son, God in flesh. He's a savior. He's a warrior king. Are you with me? Does anybody get excited about that stuff? So we start with who God is. This is what God does. Now we get to who I am. When I've received Christ by faith, I receive his grace, I am changed. Instant. I am transformed. I am a new person. I am forgiven. I am adopted. Right now I'm just going through memory of Ephesians chapter 1. All the things that God gives us our identity in Christ. This is who I am. Scripture says that I'm a saint, that I'm a fellow heir. Apparently, I'm royalty, according to Scripture. And so are you, if you know Jesus. This inheritance that I've been given is sealed, and I will spend eternity with God. It's a done deal. Does anybody believe that? That's what God does. We haven't even got to what I do yet, or you do. So it's who God is, what he does, that's who I am. You know, there's a worship song that we sing uh, quite often at the tabernacle, and it's, and it's on purpose, you know, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but it, the part it goes, I am who you say I am. You know what I'm talking about? You know, and some of you are like, why do they have to repeat that a million times? Because we're idiots and we haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> I am who you say I am. Because we believe the lies and we don't believe the truth. But when we get it right... Who God is, from that, we see what God does. Because of that, I have an identity that's in Christ. One time, just say, in Christ. Christ. 
Okay, he didn't say he liked to believe it. If you're Christian, you've been uh, baptized in the blood of the Lamb, you've been redeemed, and you hope to go to heaven, just say, I'm in Christ, like you mean it. Boom. That's who I am. Now guess what? Now there's what I do. Bottom rung is what I do. What I do, church, is a response. It's a response. And sometimes I do good works. And sometimes my works aren't that great. I had a friend right before the service say, man, I heard the band warming up. You better raise your game, son. (laughs) Sometimes my works are worse than that. Sometimes my works, what I do is sin. But it doesn't change who I am, and it doesn't change what God does, and it doesn't change who God is. That's true gospel. And if you get that, your life has changed. That, that's a soldier in God's army. A part of this exceedingly great army. That's the individual men and women. Now here's the problem. We try to do the false gospel. Work up the ladder with me. We tend to start with what we do. If I've had a good week, well then I'm a good person. And so uh, uh, that means that God's going to like me. You see, I just went up three rungs of the ladder. I got it all right. I read my Bible. I drew near. I didn't swear at my children. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. I didn't steal. You know, I made it through a week. It was a pretty good week because it wasn't really that stressful. And, you know, I I was mostly focused on, uh, you know, who I'm supposed to be. We take all of those do's, I do this, I do that, it's a bunch of do-do, and then it's like, well, I must be a good person. That's why we say dumb things like, oh, she's a really good Christian, as, as if there's a bad Christian. I'm, seriously, think about that. I'm, I'm not messing with words. We fall into performance-based acceptance and performance-based spirituality so quickly, it's because we're human beings. Because human relationships start with what I do. How many times have you met someone just in the last month and they, you know, they always start with, hi, my name is this and I'm a boom. We identify with our job. We identify with our role, where we are on the org chart. Whether we're working or retired, stay-at-home mom, married, divorced. That's where we get caught up with. So when I start with what I do, we let that define who we are, who I am. And from there, maybe God's going to accept me. Maybe he's not going to accept me. We've got it all backwards. And then we start thinking of God as something other than who he is. Some of us have been, or been, been getting God confused with our earthly fathers, and we need to stop it. Don't let your daddy issues define who God is. Hmm, heard that on a podcast one time from our student ministries pastor. So what if we were to understand the true gospel? You see, this is why it's important. If my identity is God-given, church, and I respond to what he's done, there's power there. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But if I try to manufacture my spirituality, if I try to make my identity on my own, that is based on works, and it is powerless. 
And I wonder if the reason some of us don't know who we are and the reason some of us don't feel like we're prevailing is because we're trying to manufacture something. We're trying to get God to love us and like us. Instead of understanding that God is love, he does love, he has love, he died for love, and all he wants me to do is love him back. That's who we are. So what do we do? Well, there was a little phrase in what Jesus said in that little half of a verse in Matthew 16. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's already covered the I'll build my church part. Now we know it's the church versus hell. But he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now that's interesting to me. I don't normally just pick on one verse, but... You know, we've been saying for a while here that there's no wasted words in Scripture. So if there's no wasted words in Scripture, and if none of God's words fall to the ground, particularly not God in flesh, Jesus spoke these. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Something we haven't brought up before is this. Gates are not offensive weapons. Do you ever think about that? The gates of hell shall not prevail. The way we talk, and I know I've talked this way before, is all oh, the enemy's after me. All oh, the enemy is really after our church. All oh, there's division, and when there's this, you know, division, there's disunity, and you know, it's like we have a spiritual. I mean, Scripture teaches we have we have an enemy. The devil, his demons, the forces of evil arrayed against us in the spiritual realms, right? But this verse says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And I don't think what Jesus meant is that somehow in the spirit realm, devils and demons are rolling around with some big old gates to just hit me over the head with. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? I didn't make up this verse. This is Jesus' words. The gates of hell shall not prevail against who? Against the church. This exceedingly great army that is awake, that is alive, that's been rattled awake. And the imagery is the church is marching on the gates. The church is storming the gates of hell with squirt guns. That's what we do. But if you don't know who you are, you're not going to know what you're supposed to do. We get the gospel part down, and the whole point of the series is to get us on this unified church mission of doing what? We gather to bring glory to God, and then we scatter to be about his mission. And what's his mission? Well, apparently we're supposed to plan an assault against the gates of hell. Is this too radical for you? Imagine me trying to preach this in California. Right? Come on, Michigan. Help me out here. (laughs) The gates of hell shall not prevail. It's the difference between defense and offense. Now, I know I am a coach, and I know that it's offense sells tickets, defense wins games. This is a little bit different. We already know we've won. Have we not? We sing that anthem, that song about the dry bones that rattle to remind us again, Christ has already defeated Satan, sin, and death. We already know the outcome. 
We're charging the gates of hell. It's really a mop-up operation. At best, he's already won. It's time to go on offense. This exceedingly great army, it's time to move. Do you know what armies do when they go on offense? They move. And quite frankly, it's time for some people in Buckley, for some people in Manistee, for some people in Calava, and in Kingsley, and in Mesick, and in Cadillac, and in Traverse City, and in Benzonia, and Interlochen. And if I didn't say your town, sorry, fill out the card. <laughs> but it's time for us to move. Make a move. How are the gates of hell prevailing against your marriage? Is because someone won't pick up the phone and call 1-800-TABERNACLE. I need to talk to a pastor because I suck as a husband. <laughs> or a wife. Or both. Make a move. No, we don't have time for that. Under attack. Gates are, being, uh, gates are attacking me. It's time for us to march. My school, there's no other Christians. I'm the only one. Nobody but me. Elijah already has been down this road. Make a move. March on your school. Make a friend. Invite him to student ministry. Invite him to Foundry. Hey, how about you go to Foundry for starters? Oh, that was passive aggressive. Sorry. (laughs) It's too far away. Start a Bible study. I don't know anything about the Bible. Find your Bible, first of all. Dust it off, read it for a minute, and then find some friends to talk about it. Do something. Make a move. March. What does offense mean? It means to fight. We've got to fight for the hearts of our kids. We've got to fight for the hearts of people far from God. Too many of us have been letting gates prevail against us because we're hunkering in the bunker instead of marching. Making a move. Getting in the fight. We're called to multiply. We're called to multiply. I broke it to the guys at my fight club table just this past week that the dirty little secret, because we're only four weeks in, is that, hey, we're not going to be BFFs forever. There's going to come a time when I expect those men to multiply more fight clubs. Otherwise, it's the gospel of Johnny V, and that's a really crappy gospel. It's about Jesus, is it not? And I wonder, both here in Manistee, there's been men and women involved for a while, and then somehow they were like, you know what, I'm not getting anything out of women's Bible study again. There's, you know, there's just too many women. Or, you know, I'm not getting anything about Fight Club. It's just the same old, same, you know, yeah, yeah. And then we fall into the trap of thinking it's all about us instead of what do you do in the army? Well, you move from private to corporal, from corporal to sergeant, from sergeant to master sergeant. Veterans don't correct me later. Okay, you were in the Navy, whatever. Master chief, (laughs) airman first class. But some of us, it's like we just stay at buck private. We stay at the lowest rung. Paul said this. He said, some of you are still drinking milk. You should be moved to solid food. I'm not mad. I'm frustrated. Some of you know the Bible better than I do. But you won't lead something. Lead something. 
Make a move. Get in the fight. For God's sake. For God's sake. Not for my sake. Not for the tabernacle's sake. If he's breathed life into us, and he's brought us back from the grave, and we're undefeatable, for God's sake, get in the fight. Serve somewhere. Serve in the church. Serve outside the church. Invite somebody. Invite somebody to your group. Invite somebody to a service. Invite somebody to go to another church. For God's sake. We don't sit and let others do all the fighting and the sweating and the bleeding and the dying. Jesus already did that so we could live. So we could live. You know, we say serve. We say be a domino. Give. Giving's big. Man, I got to report this, uh, uh, this past month that, well, well, here's the past year of giving at the tab. We went into lockdown, we went into quarantine, and giving stayed strong. And then, and then we weren't holding in-person services, and, and a lot of people don't have computers in Michigan, or like, I don't know how to do this, rather conveniently, and didn't, couldn't find the address, and so whatever. We just kind of evened out at about 70% of what our giving was last year. And we've been rolling along, and God's provided. We were able to dial stuff down, and then guess what happened? Same thing that happens every year, January, February, oh, taxes, as if it doesn't come every year right? And all of a sudden, when you give, when you're generous, when you tithe, you're in the fight. There's verses. You can look at the scripture. It says in Romans, how can, how can they go unless they are sent? And speaking about missionaries, there's goers and there's senders, right? So it's not just my serving and my inviting, it's my giving. And some of us have completely forgotten about it. Now, if I just looked at you through the camera, or if I just looked at you here in in the campus, and you're like, I haven't given in three months, and he just looked at me. My eyes have to go somewhere. I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. That's always how it's been at our church. Somebody knows, though. And no one's casting judgment. But God knows. And he's asking us, I think, to get in the fight with our giving, with our serving, with our inviting He's asking us to get in the fight by drawing near. For God's sake. Now there's good news. If scripture is true, then the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so even if there's just some of us that want to march, we're still going to win. You know why? Because he wins. It's the greatest game you could ever play. I'm competitive. And it's like, oh, I'm already a winner. If I'm already a winner, I don't even, don't even have to worry about mistakes. I can freestyle just a little bit. I can take some risks. Because he's already defeated Satan, sin, and death. And when men and women and students, when we understand the gospel, we understand who God is and what he does, now we understand who we are. 
and what we are called to do. And when we do that together, this exceedingly great army, just like in the intro video, you know, when it's building that ding, 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 and you see the hand and the dirty thing of the white guy, but whatever, you know, and then all of a sudden that foot goes, just like that. I love that. He makes a move. But you know what? We don't do it alone. When the foot comes down, on your left, we get lockstep, not with a preacher, we get lockstep with the king of kings. And we march. And when that happens, when he's fighting the battles for us, with us, through us, in us, when we're fighting for hearts and minds, when we're fighting for our kids, when we're fighting for our relationships, when we're fighting for our marriages, when we're getting help, locked arm like that, we rattle the very gates of hell. Rattle the very gates of hell. It says at the back of the book, John's vision of the end of all things. He saw heaven opened and behold there was a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What's he telling you to do? In your situation, in your squad, in your platoon, in your battalion, in your house, it's time to make a move. It's time to make a move. Would you bow your heads with me? The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. If there's any crazy person here or listening or watching, you can put your guns away, your knives away. That's not what it's about. We wage war different from the world. We demolish arguments. We take every thought captive and make it obedient to the gospel and to Christ. But most of us, we've already heard God speak to us. If there's sin you need to confess, now's a great time to do it. If there's commitments you need to make to make a move, to get in the march, to get in the fight, now's the time to do it. If there's action, God's been tapping you on the shoulder for a while to take. This could be the beginning of a rattle for you, a real revival. And I promise you, if it's God speaking and you obey, you won't regret it. 
Just say yes. Lord Jesus, would you help us to surrender to you again? To your will, to your word, to your instruction, to your command. Would you help us surrender to you so that we can be victorious? God, I thank you that nothing can prevail against your church. The very gates of hell will be shaken and stormed and defeated because you fight for us. And you've already won the victory. Help us to believe you and believe the words that you say about us and you say about your church. It's in Christ's name that I ask it and that we pray. And if you agree, say amen.